D. Have you ever seen an elephant hiding in a tree? No. They're good at hiding, aren't they? Oh, my goodness. Where did you hear that? Every morning I ask S-I-R-I, let's not say your name, to tell me a joke. And that was the one she told me. (laughs) Because when we say her name, all of a sudden she pops up on our computer now. and We can't figure out how to make her stop. Yeah. Um, Okay. All right. So tell me the next one. She says reluctantly. (laughs) Do you know why hummingbirds hum? Again, no. They hum because they don't know the words. Oh, okay. They're like dad jokes. We better get started. They're (laughs) S-I-R-I jokes. (laughs) Well, my Siri. Oh, I almost said it. Never mind. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden on an acre and a half out of seven and a half acres in the country. And I live in the land of eastern red cedars, which is why my voice sounds so bad. And I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana. I have a suburban garden measured in square feet, about a third of an acre. We call ourselves Garden Angelus because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want you to love it too. Yes, we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. Good morning, Dee. Good morning, Carol. We should say it's Friday. It is. Before we release the following week. We got it on our correct day. Just we barely. Did. What did you do in your garden this week? So I did sow more seeds for microgreens. And then, because I had eaten through the others, I I went to the a garden center. I bought seeds for red onions, and I was looking for the bulbing type, which I got. And then they had a bunting red onion. I thought, well, I will get that one too. So now, Fun. for whatever reason, I'm growing like six varieties of onions. Anyway, Wednesday was beautiful. I think it got up to like 65. So I went out and I pruned a little bit on my crab apple and pruned a little bit of the service berries and just kind of neatened things up a little bit on a few of those trees rained all day Thursday and now there's Mm -hmm. some snow in the forecast supposedly maybe tonight I don't know but anyway that's that was my week in the garden what was your week in the garden like I was busy I transplanted some baby plants into larger four inch containers they'd outgrown their space and it was like rudbeckia and lisianthus things like that And then I worked in the garden a bit and I had two garden coaching clients this week. And I'm just going to put out the word that if people want to get on my schedule, they need to hurry because I'm getting, I'm getting inundated with requests and they all need help and they need help now. And every one of them is different. So it's really fun. The other thing I was going to say, what else did I do in the garden? You know, I did a little trimming up and stuff and then I put out a really grumpy Instagram that apparently really hit a note with several people. So there you go. Did it hit a note or did it hit a nerve? We'll talk about that later. (laughs) It hit a nerve. Uh, Let's talk about our favorites. Your favorite. Oh, my favorite is one lone Irish reticulata. And I think I sent a picture of it to you and it was blooming in my front flower bed. I have no idea how, because I did not plant one there. Yay. I only... I only have iris reticulata outside my kitchen door and they aren't blooming yet because they're kind of in the shade half the day. So I, I don't know how it got there. Some little mouse must've dragged the bulb or who knows. Could be. I've had several iris reticulata popping up out in front, but they, you have 
Southern exposure, they, they're popping right up. But my favorite is my crocus lawn. Yeah, I love it. It's beautiful. I went out Wednesday and I thought, this is glorious. I actually made a reel. I actually put it on the Facebook or Instagram and on Facebook. And so I am impressed by how much the bulbs are spreading and how much they're multiplying. And you can tell because I didn't plant clumps of like a dozen together. So it's, I love it. No, but you've been working on that crocus lawn for how many years now? I started, I think, around 2011. Okay, 2011. I know. That is 12 years. No, I think this is an important point. Well, I planted 500 the first year and 1,000 another year and 1,000 another year and 1,000 in the other year and 500 the next year until I didn't plant any bulbs last fall or the fall before. And it's just it's just getting bigger and bigger. So, but I see some places where I think I'm going to plant more bulbs. And I think I'm going to really? plant more bulbs in front because in the front beds, there are just as many of those things spreading and I let them go to seed as much as possible. And I don't use herbicides back there. So, so when you did it, I tried it too. And I tried it for three years and it looked pretty good. And then the voles came and they tunneled all over my front yard. I mean, it was like a vole party, like a vole egger. That's what it was. Yeah. And they ate every one of my had. And then I had also planted some in my front flower bed, which is actually a border. And they got all of those too, the crocus dementianus. But here's the deal. I have a little tiny section left that they never found. For whatever reason. That's good. Well, and I feel like I like tell people you got to get ahead of the voles and ahead of the the things that would eat the bulbs so that there's no way they could eat them all unless they had, you know, like a record infestation. Plus, I don't know whether it's good or bad. There are now two feral cats, black and white, that are hanging around the neighborhood and they hang around in my garden and I see them back there. So they might be keeping things a little bit free of those critters. And yeah. my neighbors next door have named them. So, and I, I figured out they named one and I saw that one yesterday. Well, good. I mean, I'm thrilled that you're, I don't even, I'm not even jealous of your lawn. Like I love it so much that it just gives me joy. Yes. So, so anyway, go. that's, that's the deal on that. So I'll do a quote. We'll talk about flowers, which also bring us joy. Yep. I think seeds are probably the best part of the whole gardening season because they are just packed with promise. And that is somebody named Beth Pye Lieberman. And I don't know who Beth Pye Lieberman is. We didn't look her up this week, but great quote. So pollinator-friendly plants from seed. This actually came from an email we got from Select Seeds. And it's about pollinator-friendly plants that you can grow from seed. But you you were smart when you looked at the list because you were reminded of several things, which I think are important. So I'll run down through a few of those. So I looked at the list and some of the seeds that they offer are plants that would readily self-sow in my garden. So I would classify them as easy from seed. That'd be the asters. There's a globe thistle on there. Native columbines, I get those popping up. And so that is something to remember that seeds that are easy to sow are often, especially perennials, are often seeds that self-sow in your garden. And right. if if you're going to grow some of these plants from seed, there's no 
there's no instant. You have to have some patience and you have to look at requirements. Do they need to have a cold period before they will germinate? That is really important to know because if you're going to sow them now and they haven't had that cold treatment, you might be slightly disappointed, as you pointed out, for one particular flower. Milkweeds, native milkweeds. Most of the native milkweeds require a cold stratification period. And I think people don't, and that's just the official term for cold period. And every seed that requires one has a slightly different one. So on milkweed seeds, you've got to have You've got to, well, first of all, you've got to give them a cold period. And a lot of people go ahead and start them indoors, which was not one of the things you listed, but that's another thing. Do these seeds, are these seeds you can regularly just sow outside? Because when I was a new gardener, that's all I wanted to do was sow seeds outside, right? Because direct sow. A lot of things are not direct sow. A lot of things are, you have to start them indoors. And sometimes like with Bampton, Verbena Bampton, which isn't on this list, I don't think, it needs to have darkness to sow, right? And so the other day, Claudia on Instagram, and for the life of me, I can't think of her handle right now, but she's pretty famous. She was showing where she was doing some seeds indoors under, I, I think they're in a window. And she was using that, you know what her technique is to get that darkness? I thought it was brilliant. What was that? You take your pot, you put the seeds on top, you put a layer, a slight layer of dirt on top of them if they are required, because some of them aren't. And then she takes another pot of the same size. This was a six inch pot. And she taped up the little drainage holes and she put it on top. And then she taped the edges. And I thought, wow, that's an easy way to do it. That's what I do with my microgreens. They're in little five by five containers. And I bought enough extra so I can put the one on top. Now I don't tape up the drainage holes. So my point in getting no light is I want them to get leggy and then right and get leggy and they look kind of yellow. You take that off and then they green up in about a day or so. So that is an effective technique. Yeah. The other thing. I think it is too. We didn't put this in our, in our show notes, but a lot of these seeds for perennials are the kind that you can very successfully winter sow where you use the gallon milk containers or water containers or whatever. And But it's getting to the point where it's almost too late to winter sow now. It is too late. So I don't think I would buy milkweed seeds right now. I would buy those in the fall. And I actually might winter sow them to get them to do what I want them to do. By the way, Claudia's name is Claudia Weeks, and she's the organized homemaker. She's a very popular Instagrammer. And a really good, a really good gardener. So the other thing I would say about these seeds is I went to the Select Seeds website and their focus is on pollinator friendly plants. So they have 24 pages. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. There are plenty of perennials and annuals. And the thing is, I, I find that almost all flowers are pollinator friendly, unless they're like those big double things that are all, you can't find the pollen to save your life. Or they don't have pollen. Some of them, some of the sunflowers, they've spread out the pollen because they don't want them. They want them for florists and they don't want it to be on the table, but keep going. Yeah. So the other thing, if you're starting from seed, like you and I are doing, 
there is no instant garden and some people want to go buy the plants and plant it out and then it's they're small but it's it's instant but in in the past i i haven't done it as much recently and people are saying you're sowing all kinds of seeds carol but there was a time i sowed a ton of seeds for different perennials very successfully and that's how i got the Columbine, not the native Columbine. I don't know where that came from. It just showed up. I probably you bought probably it. probably reverted. No, or I bought re- it. Or you bought no. some. Oh, no, okay. I bought it. And then, but the ones that are self-sewing out there are the European Columbine, the Vulgaris, uh-huh. called Granny's Bonnets because they're more doubles and stuff. But they're, they must be enough pollinator friendly that they are producing a lot of seed and cross-pollinating with each other. And so that's that's how I have them. I I wouldn't say literally everywhere, but they they pop up in all kinds of unusual places. And so I just let them grow. And then if after a while I'm thinking that's not a good spot for you, I'll just take it out. And sometimes don't even transplant it. So, but I don't know that it would have been as good, or if I could have found the varieties that I planted if I had bought plants. Bingo. So that was the other thing I was thinking about is that. You may it may take longer and pay, you may require patience to grow a garden from seed, but the more you grow from seed, the more variety you get, the more plants you get. I wouldn't have all the Rebecca's I have, you know, because every year I grow a few more, kind of like your crocus. I grow a few more Rebecca's, and I really really like Prairie Sun, and I really like Cherry Brandy. Those are two I love dearly. And to get those Rebecca's in a high number of plants, you really need to grow them from seed. And it takes a little while, but you'll get flowers by the end of summer. It's just, it takes a little bit. And the thing is, is when you buy those as plants, they're usually already blooming. And then you transplant them and you really need to cut off the blooms to give them some bulk. And then they may not come back anyway, because they may get attacked by caterpillars or just not thrive because they've been pushed so hard to get ready. And we don't push our seeds, you know, we grow them naturally. So there's a lot of considerations. And I think growing things from seed gives your garden a lot more variety, which is kind of what you're saying about the columbines. Yes. And I will have to note, because I feel like I've been lax in not mentioning violas and pansies enough. And then that's that's disappointing our listeners. I would like to note that on their list are several violets that are pollinator friendly. So I just, I did want to point that out. And do not make me laugh. When I laugh, I cough. So stop it. I'm sorry. Was, (laughs) I don't know that I was being humorous with that. Oh my gosh. They have the scarlet runner bean is pollinator friendly. I've got seeds for that. Well, there you go. So there's, there's there's a ton of zinnias on here. Obviously they're very pollinator friendly. Extremely. Yeah. And going through this list for a couple of gals that seem to have a lot of seeds already, I think that there's a certain danger there and we should go on to the vegetable thing so that we don't end up ending this podcast by out buying each other on seeds. No, because see, I've already got the cherry tomato project. I've already got the millions of zinnias. And then what are these? I mean, I, these little packets all came last week. Oh, look, from Siskiyou, remember how I talked about it last week? Yes, this yes. is dangerous. I've got the Tide Pool mix, which is a rare, com- raucous and rare combination of zinnia. 
And then I've got golden giant amaranth. Oh my goodness. Let's move on. Save me from myself. All right. Do the next quote. That'll save you. In the long twilights, when she looked shiveringly from the windows of the old farmhouse and thought how very white and cold and solitary were the snowy fields on the hill, she wanted summer, fields of daisies, seas misty with moonrise or purple with sunset. And that is Ellen Montgomery. And that's from Emily of New Moon. That is lovely. Emily has so many books. It is lovely. And I'm sick of winter. So. Let's talk about edimentals. That is our vegetable topic. So this term edimentals is coming up and I there's now tons of articles because it's trending, but here's the official definition that I got from Homes and Gardens website. Edimentals are dual purpose plants that are both aesthetically pleasing and edible. And the list of edimentals is a long and exhaustive one opening up a world of possibilities to have an attractive and also productive space. Yes. And so they go on. So under the end, so under the edimental umbrella are herbs and edible flowers, which makes sense, right? Right. And we both grow, we both grow edimentals because we grow herbs and edible flowers. I mean, I've got nasturtiums in the greenhouse right now, just bulking up and looking so cute. Well, and then there are tons of trees and shrubs. I mean, you could start, if you had acidic soil, you could start with blueberries as a shrub, which I've tried to grow blueberries as a shrub. It didn't work out. I don't have acidic soil. I grow blueberries as a small shrub in my pots on my deck. And that's the only way I can grow blueberries. And so a lot of times when people tell me that, I mean, so everybody wants to grow strawberries. I guess strawberries are edimental too, because they're quite pretty, especially the red flowered ones. Uh Uh-huh. I say to people, well, here's the thing. Strawberries aren't the easiest thing <laughs> because you have to decide, do you want June bearing or do you want ever bearing or do you want date neutral? I mean, it gets a little confusing, right? It what does. are you going to do with these things? Blueberries, on the other hand, at least on my deck, come back every year and the bumblebees love them. Only thing I have to keep them away from, birds. And I acidify the soil in the pot. So it's easy. Well, and my solution for not being able to grow blueberries, because I don't think they would survive in pots in my climate, is the edible and native honeyberries, which is... Yes. Yeah. And I have two lovely honeyberries out there that are lovely shrubs. And so when you start to think about this, first thing that comes to mind is our friend Ellen Zakos, who's a forager. And in her new garden in Santa Fe... Only edible things. So it has to have a part that's edible for it to make it to her garden. So like sunchokes. And once I gave her some daylilies, because daylilies are edible. Although technically they say only one daylily is edible, but most people think they're all edible. What else does she have in there? I know the sunchokes because I saw them one time. Anyway, she, oh, cannas. She says that she can have a canna because the root is edible. I... I'm not planning to eat a can of root, but in my garden, I'm I kind of, I mentally went around and I said, okay, I have these service berries that produce fruit and I never pick it for myself, but that's edible. And the crab apple up front, I'm growing because it has beautiful flowers, hardly any disease on it at all. And it has little crab apples. So I leave them for the birds. Of course, we're both growing sunflowers, lots of seeds. That's what I think of. With I have a service berry. 
have a service berry out by my little greenhouse and it's getting quite big. I also grow crab apples. I have royal raindrops up in my upper pasture and the birds love them and the bees love them. And then, and I don't eat the crab apples because they're the persistent one. Isn't that what yours is too? Has the little tiny fruit? Yes. Carol? Yeah, yes, that's what I thought. Very tiny. <laughs> I like what you called dandelions. Well, I, I'm guessing what? D, I just made up a new word. Imagine that. It's perfect though. Weedamentals. You know what else is a weedamental? Purslane. Yeah. I Well, it's not really ornamental. They're not really ornamental. So maybe that's why nobody came up with the term weedamentals. I'll have to come up with a better term. I think purslane is okay. I like weedamental. You can buy purslane. You mentioned flowering. Not, yeah. If you're in Europe, you would. Oh, no. I got, some, buy, I got some from you got Burpee some one year. one, don't you? Yeah, yeah that's right. I got did. a real pretty one last year. No, thanks. <laughs> I have plenty of the common one. All over my yard. So maybe weedamentals are weeds that people grow as ornamentals, like purslane. Or they could be weedables. They're edible weeds. That's a good way. Okay. (laughs) Also, I wanted to note that hostas are edible. The early shoot, the early first shoots that come up, especially in Japan, I think they cut those and I I would assume saute them. I guess. I mean, I'll just stick with some of the more basic stuff. Anyway, we thought edimentals was fun, and we thought we'd share about it and make you all laugh. And now we come up with new words. Yes, weedable, weedables, and weedimentals. I'll write a blog <laughs> post about them, T. Let me make. A I note. bet you will. I will. Would I will like- tomorrow. <laughs> I bet you will. So, would you like to do the next quote, or are you, I, you're I would. taking notes? Well, I've got to write down weedables and weedimentals. Okay. Okay. Now I'm going to do the next quote. Success in gardening, indoors or out, is the result of observation and knowledge, not any magical power. And that is from The Indoor Gardener, 1939 by Daisy Thompson Abbott. So on our bookshelf this week is a book that was sent to us by Quartro, which is Cool Springs Press, and it is The Layered Edible Garden. It fits in with our last topic. A Beginner's Guide to Creating a Productive Food Garden Layer by Layer by Christina Chung of Fluent Garden. I'm going to guess she's on Instagram. I'll look for that while you talk about it a bit. So the book is going to actually come out on the 27th. So by the time this comes out, the book will be out. So this is a timely post. And when you look at this description, it's all about really edimentals in a way. Uh, it is. Uh, designing, planting, and tending a self-sustaining, high-yielding food garden that saves space by growing plants the way nature intended in layers. And so she says, say goodbye to long straight rows in the vegetable garden with the plants all lined up, waiting to be attacked by pests and diseases, and say hello to an interplanted polyculture paradise. With edible plants mm-hmm. that outcompete the weeds, share resources, grow beautifully, and so this is this is an interesting book, and I've I've been looking through it, and she has three yeah. layers: the tree layer, the subcanopy trees, the shrubs, vines, perennials, annuals, ground covers, and even edible roots. And she has the word of a mini food forest that could produce food for years mm-hmm. to come. And here's the thing, you you directed me to page 21. Yeah, soil, a, a tool to fight climate change, and talked about how the soil 
can be a tool to help sequester carbon if you leave the the dying material on it and don't like have clear soil. Uncover it. Uncover. Don't uncover. Right. Which is the new watchword for everything. Don't uncover and it. So, yeah, the idea is that you know when you put your garden to bed in fall, you don't go through and clean it all up, which was really popular before. I said before the 2000s. I mean, I just remember when I first started gardening, that was the watchword is you cleaned up everything in the fall. Well, you don't do that anymore. And and then you let it kind of grow on into spring. And what she's showing here in this picture is kind of a meadow. And so she's saying perennial plants, whether they are edible or ornamental, lock carbon into the soil and reduce soil disturbance. I thought one of the reasons that this was interesting is because we usually think of carbon sequestering, which is what this is, carbon sequestering, we think about it in terms of trees. That's why people worry about the rainforest and stuff. Right. And so you can also do it with prairies, which several people who talk about prairie gardening have talked about this for quite a while. But you could totally use edible plants in with this planting. I mean, a lot of people do. And that takes me back to, so this book isn't completely new. It's a new way to talk about it. But think about Rosemary Veery and her beautiful front yard that was a mix of layers of ornamental plants and ornamental vegetables and fruits. Yeah, you're thinking about Rosemary Creasy. Oh, I am so sorry. I said the wrong name. No, Rosemary Veery is in England. That's right. Yes, Rosemary Creasy. Ro- no, it's Rosalind, Rosalind Creasy. We're crazy girls. Oh my gosh, we totally messed that up. All right, Rosalind Creasy. That's because I didn't write it in the dang notes. I should have. Anyway. She, she was one of the first ones to discuss this. And I think she takes it to a new level and talks about, you know, trees too that are edible and talks about buzzwords like food forest. Food forest is a huge buzzword. It's been around, gosh, I want to say since about 2006. Well, here's that's when I started hearing it. Yeah. Here's the other thing. If you go to page 195, she's got, I mean, well, the thing I want to say is, this book is good for advanced gardeners like you and I that just let, let me think about this in a new way. But also she's got a lot of good information for beginning gardeners and like pruning woody plants by the seasons. And so she lists spring, fall, summer, winter and gives the pros and cons yeah, this is good. of pruning in each season. And, you know, I was thinking about that when I was out there pruning those trees that it now is the perfect time. Because as she says, there's less material to deal with. The branches branches are bare. You can walk around underneath because stuff hasn't really come up. Mm-hmm. And then most fruit trees, for example, which would be like the service berry and the crab apple, they are best pruned in the late winter. So it is very good in that respect. And I want to also direct your attention to page 85. There's something for you and I in there. Not that okay. we would do this. I direct you to the little box at the bottom of page 85, dealing with, oh, in- that's funny. <laughs> dealing with impulse purchases. <laughs> Not that you and I would do that, Dee. We are so dedicated to our list. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she's just. Okay. Well, this, this particular impulse purchase has to do with color schemes. I did have that color crush last year where it was all about coral. Yeah. You remember that? Yes. And I did have a lot of fun with it. One thing I learned was. Coral is not easy to incorporate into my garden. It doesn't really go with the pinks. It kind of goes with the yellows. I mean, it's a strange little color, but I enjoy it. 
anyway, yeah, I mean, I think she knows her stuff and she is on Instagram and she has 150,000 followers. Yes. So anyway, that is really impressive. The Layered Garden, A Beginner's Guide to Creating a Productive Food Garden, Layer by Layer by Christina Chung, a fluent garden. And by the way, and we'll say, don't let that beginner thing fool you. This is a lot of good information and worth a reread or uh, not a reread, but worth looking through even if you have experience. There you go. Yeah, I would say it is not just beginners no, for sure. No, There's stuff in there that I was like, dang, those are heavy duty pieces of info. Exactly. So there you go. Your quote. I'm getting down to it. There was a lot of information under the book. There are no happier folks than plant lovers and none more generous than those who garden. Earnest. And then for some reason it has in quotes, Chinese Wilson. I'm going to have to look that up because why? Why does it have that in the middle? What, I have a feeling it's some weird. I looked that up before that, I put that on there because, and that's the way everybody okay. refers to him. So I thought, well, I guess we will too. Is he Chinese? I, I have no idea. Okay. Well, there you go. All right. So we're going to talk about dirt and I kind of provided it. So you want me to talk about the first dirt? You do the first dirt. I'll do the second dirt. Okay. The first dirt is kind of bad news and another reason to plant lots of milkweed and to buy it from reputable sources. The Monarch wintering grounds update is not good. It's the second lowest wintering update. They measure it by the hectares or hectares, how you say that. And it really shrunk. (laughs) And the thought is it was because we had a really bad drought in the fall in Oklahoma and Texas. That's what they're blaming it on. And in Texas right now, they're having a drought again. So that drought, if we have a fall drought and Texas has a fall drought, it affects a lot of things. It affects their bluebirds, bluebirds, blue bonnets when they come in the spring because right. they actually set flowers in the fall. There's a lot of things it affects and it affects the monarchs too. So that's according to Monarch Watch update. And all I want to say about that is plant more milkweed in your garden. And if I can find it, we did a whole thing about the new way you're supposed to plant milkweed. It might be hard to find. And it was fascinating because it was not how I was doing it. And so I've started doing more. One thing I do know I can say off the top of my head is put it in many places in your garden. And common milkweed is a colonizer. Once you have it, you will always have it because it spreads from, I think, underground stems. And it also spreads from seed. So, and it smells like bubblegum in the spring. And then the other thing, my other tip is we get monarchs in the spring. In Oklahoma, when do you get them, Carol? Midsummer to fall. Middle of summer? Into fall. Yeah, because that's when Wisconsin gets theirs. So then when they start back, the super generation comes here in the fall and, you know, comes in our gardens and then goes on down to Mexico. So cut your milkweed back. If you live in Texas, Oklahoma, I would even say Arkansas, Kansas, cut your milkweed back in half because one of the monarch's problems is it's a particular little creature that it, and is. it really likes fresh leaves and it likes only monarch and it likes only milkweed leaves. So fresh leaves. So cut back all your milkweed in half. It'll look terrible for about two weeks and then it goes whoosh and it's beautiful again and they eat it all. That's all. That's all. And D, you wrote a most excellent blog post about the monarch or the milkweed and how to plant it. You remember that blog post? We'll find that and we'll link to that. I can find it. Yeah. Yeah. That one actually went 
viral on Google, which was lovely. It doesn't happen very often. So my okay, your turn. My update is on that GMO tomato that we talked about a few weeks ago from Norfolk Botanic. I don't know what the Norfolk, whatever their name was. But anyway, mm-hmm. Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, which is rareseeds.com, they had a purple tomato on their cover. And they thought they had yes, they covered themselves to make sure that it was not a GMO tomato. They had gotten it from somebody over in Europe. And mm-hmm. they tested it and couldn't find any evidence of it being a GMO. But then the folks from the Norfolk who created it and are now marketing the first GMO tomato reached out to Baker Creek and said, it looks that's the same like tomato. our tomato. <laughs> and so Baker Creek did some more testing and they, they couldn't prove or unprove, I guess. And so out of an abundance mm-hmm. of caution, they pulled that purple tomato off the market. And that was what they had featured on the cover of their catalog. Yeah. And they also, they wrote a whole news bulletin about it. Oh, they did. I felt felt like they did the smartest thing you can possibly do in that situation because they're known for heirloom seeds. Yes. I mean, that's, they try their best to do heirloom seeds and seeds from around the world that aren't in cultivation a lot anymore. And that's their big focus. And so the idea of having the first GMO for garden for home gardener seed on your cover would be hard if you were them. I bet there was a lot of heartfelt stress about it. Angst. Now other people have come out angst, angst, because this is how they feel about it. And so we were also sent something that reminds me by one of our listeners where our friend Felder rushing said he likes the idea of the tomato and he's going to grow it. And we said, yeah, that sounds like Felder because Felder is adventurous. That's the best way I know to put it. But for Baker Creek to do that, that would be, that would not be, that would be bad. Well, probably they, and I think there are, somebody said 40 different seed houses, I'll call them, that have signed a pledge that said they will not offer GMO seeds, that you can shop their catalog without having to wonder, is this a GMO, if you don't want to plant GMOs. And many people do not want GMOs. Right. So they they did the right thing by pulling it off. And so I put it at the end of Yeah, because it's not their focus. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. No matter how you feel about this, and, I, and I'll be honest, I don't know how I feel about it. I don't really want to grow GMOs. Not really. I do um, either. Not interested. There's too many other good seeds out there. I don't need the darkest purple tomato. There are already purple tomatoes. I mean, Brad from Wild Boar Farms, he has beautiful, beautiful purple tomatoes. They're all open pollinated. So, but that, but I want to reiterate one more time. That was redundant. Get it? I do. I did get it. Redundant. Ha ha ha. Anyway, I was with someone this week. One of my clients wants to grow his first veggie garden. And he said, what about heirloom tomatoes? And I said, why don't we start, he has a very small space. I said, why don't we start with three types of tomatoes, cherry, early salad, main season. That way you'll get tomatoes for quite a while. And then I said, and I wouldn't start right off with heirlooms. I would start with three hybrids because they're, you know, the disease resistance is legendary on some of them. And I gave him three names. And I said, but if you get there and you fall in love with an heirloom, great. We'll put it in the plan, but just keep in mind that a they often grow really tall because they're almost all indeterminate, right? 
They produce fruit over the whole season, but not as much fruit. And I explained to him about determinate versus indeterminate. And I said, so, you know, it's all about what you want in your garden. Now, I grow mostly heirlooms now with some hybrids mixed in because I don't need a ton of fruit. I need weird because I like weird, but I'm still not growing that purple tomato. I'm just not interested in it. What do you think? I am not also growing that. I'm not also. I'm not going to grow that purple tomato. And I do wonder if Pandora's box of tomato GMO stuff has opened and if this is going to get way more complicated in the future. And I hope not. I hope that this, you know, this idea that the world needs all these GMO tomatoes in sort of with it, not with a novelty tomato and let's move on. That's my thought. Okay. You want to do the next quote? Yes. I've always felt like having a garden is like having a good and loyal friend. And that is by C.Z. Guest. Okay. So I'm also reading that book that you, about the swans of Fifth Avenue. Yes. Do you want me? Because you suggested it to me, right? Yes. And so I am wondering if she wrote that quote because... Truman Capote was not a good and loyal friend. And pretty much CZ, after the deal, even though she still talked to him, she went out and went out in her garden and went on with her life instead of letting him, you know, destroy her. So just a thought I'm having. Anyway, I love the book. I like the book. Well, better than let the me. Show. Since the you, show was weird last night and creeped me out. Well, let me just, just say this. I'll go through my rabbit hole and then. I got a second little rabbit hole, but I'll let you do your rabbit hole. And then we'll end with my second little rabbit hole. But yes, CZ Guest is one of the swans. And I hooked you up with a book called The Swans of Fifth Avenue by Melanie Benjamin, written in 2017. The series is based on another book called Capote's Women, A True Story of Love, Betrayal, and a Song Song for an Era by Lawrence Lemer. Did not read that. Mm -hmm. I really have no plans to read that. I just wanted to know, like, the story of the swans. But I also knew that I didn't want to watch that series because I don't like many shows that are put out these days. And I thought, I'm just not going to get hooked on watching that. I'm going to read a good book. And I'm now kind of obsessed with Melanie Benjamin thinking, why haven't I read any of her books before? And so that, anyway, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to stomp on your... Um... No, that's okay your deal because I didn't realize I didn't read it. So I didn't know oh, that you were going to okay. talk about all of this. But anyway, so I, I'm from the novel, not the show. And I saw something about last night's episode and I'm thinking, I am glad I am not watching that. It was great until we got to that, that episode and that episode upset me. Yes. Okay. Keep going. So we should say it's episode six. Okay. Anyway, the swans that were in the novel we're not. CZ Guest was kind of mentioned in passing as, oh, she's probably out in her garden. But for for yeah, having money times. and power, they were not very happy people. And I I like mm -mm. little snippets where she really brought out the character people, like Babe Paley, who's the main swan that that was featured. Her husband Bill Paley was mm -hmm. the head of CBS, and. It talked about how if he got hungry in the middle after the noon, afternoon, he could walk into a little kitchen off his office, make himself a sandwich. And they said, yep. without a thought as to where the food came from, how the kitchen got cleaned up when he was done, it was just magically there for him. 
And Babe Paley... That was kind of their whole life. Babe Paley spent her whole life making sure that it was magically there for Bill Paley, who returned the favor by just having affair after affair after affair. Anyway. Uh-huh. So, but in the... I I did go down. I found a ton of interviews by CZ guests that were published in newspapers in... in don't I don't some of these were in the early 2000s she passed away in 2003 but in one interview she's you know it was noted that her husband was extremely private and didn't even like to see her picture in the Mm -hmm. paper which is why I don't think she of all those swans she didn't spill her guts to Truman like everybody else did no she didn't she was friends with him but she did not tell him and she didn't gossip she was not much of a gossip no which a lot of them were because they were bored. Well, and so she had a life. She had a life because she was in love with horses and horseback riding. But she, when she, after she fell off her horse, people were calling saying, how are you? And by the way, can you, what's wrong with my tomatoes? Because she was also very interested in gardening. And there was an interview where she learned gardening. She would trail after her mother's gardener because she grew up wealthy as well. And just ask tons yeah, of questions. Very I I remember seeing yeah. something about her husband had a they had some difficult financial times and had to go from one very large estate to a much smaller estate, eleven acres. Mm-hmm. And I think they also still had a home in Palm Beach. But anyway, well, and they moved out of the really fancy part to Long Island. Yes, that's a huge part of it too. Yeah. but she loved that because then she got to be out away from things and she still had horses. She just didn't ride like she did before. And she also, she got to garden to her heart's content and she was a really good gardener. And I have to say, I love her in the novel and I love her in the show. I really do. She is in the show. She points out to one of the swans, you know, you brought this on yourself. Exactly. You knew he was a gossip. So there you go. What else do you want to say about well, her? I, She's awesome. I, I wrote about her as a lost lady of garden writing because in 1976, she actually wrote a garden book called First Garden. And then in 1978, she started a garden column called In the Garden with, I don't know, forget the name of it after all that. But it, she was syndicated in 350 newspapers. So you, mm-hmm. you could read her stuff forever. And she died, I, I would say, rather unexpectedly in 2003 because She'd put out a book in 2000 and a children's book in like 2001. So the end result is, of course, I I did end up ordering a good use copy of First Garden, her first book. And I got the 1976 edition. All the used copies I could find are a a new edition from 1987. And she actually had Truman write the introduction to it. And some famous artist named Cecil Beaton did a bunch of drawings inside of it. Yeah, Cecil. Cecil Beaton. Beaton. Uh, He was famous. And he was, he was part of their set. And there were copies that were hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but I found this one for a very reasonable amount and it's supposedly signed by her. So we shall see when I get it. But now that I saved all that money. I'm amazed you found it. Now that I've saved all that money by not buying one that was hundreds and hundreds of dollars, I got to think about what to buy myself. Okay. Your rabbit hole. That's used book gardening math. I made that up. I could have bought a $35 one or $500 one. I bought the $35 one or $30. So I saved $470. So now I have $470 to spend on other books. See how that works? Sure. Okay. Okay. Moving on. So I'm going to talk about the hateful Eastern Red Cedar, which is Junipera's Virginiana. 
And so right now in Oklahoma, I noticed about mm, two weeks ago, I started looking around and a bunch of the Eastern red cedars were yellow. They were just yellow, like golden or mustard yellow. And I thought that does not bode well for all of us. And as you can tell by my voice, it is not boding well for me and my asthma. This has nothing to do with alpha gal. This has to do with just standard hay fever and asthma. So if you look at them right now, they are bright yellow. And that bright yellow comes because I did a deep dive on it from the mustard yellow pollen cones because the males have cones and the females have cones. The female cones are, they're all very tiny and the female cones are brown. So guess how these are pollinated? Not by insects. It's another opportunity to bring up the fact that flowers that are not, that are pollinated by insects don't have the kind of pollen that makes you sick. That's correct. They have a heavy, sticky pollen, but Eastern red cedar is wind pollinated. Fly, baby, fly. And yesterday was so bad that it was, I mean, it's been on the news for the last four days, but yesterday the meteorologist, Mike Morgan on Channel 4, he pointed out that the air was hazy with eastern red cedar pollen. So there's this interesting thing. And so I hate the eastern red cedar. I hate it for so many things, even though my garden is called Little Cedar Garden, which my sister-in-law named it, that I would cut down everyone within miles if I could. And when something I'm wondering, which I have not done a deep dive on yet, Logan County, which is my county, is trying to pass something called a fire tax. And I need to go look and see what that's what that is. I'm sure it comes out of the Simpson fire because that fire burned miles right. of stuff, right? Right. It might be to get rid of some of these cedars, which aren't cedars. They're junipers. But anyway, it is an evergreen with scaly leaves, reddish brown bark that grows in strips, makes great furniture. And it is dioecious, meaning there are male and female plants and they have to have each other and it is wind pollinated. And then the pollinated cones on the female turn from green to blue-gray berries. They look like berries, but they're not technically berries. But guess who eats those? Cedar waxwings and other birds. And so that's why it spreads so easily throughout the state. And we don't have prairie fires anymore to keep them under control. So I tell everybody that I meet that's out in the country, I'm like, look, cut down every juniper that you can of of these junipers. I'm not anti-junipers, but we have too many eastern red cedars in Oklahoma. They're eating. They also drink too much water. They're just awful. They're just awful, awful, awful. The end. The end. I'm going to say this to that. It's not a problem where I live, but I live close to a major metropolitan area. But I do remember my dad said when he was a kid and they they would cut a tree on their farm for their Christmas tree, they often cut down an eastern red cedar for the Christmas tree, which sounds... No way would I have that in my house. As you can tell, I'm extremely allergic to them, but whatever. Yeah, I'm glad he did it because that was one less eastern red cedar. And we have a few left. Most of ours are gone. They're mostly all burned. If you have to keep one in your yard, limit up because then if you do have a fire, the fire goes underneath it and the bark is really, really hard and tough and it doesn't tend to turn into a Roman candle quite so easily. So you have an eclipse update. Yes, I thought, you know, Dee, because you're extremely not interested, but obviously one of our listeners is because she sent me this vital information. Thank you, Lynn. And 
Apparently, you can book a flight on the day of the eclipse, April the 8th. It will take off in Austin, Texas, and it will fly to Detroit following the path of the eclipse so that you are going to be in total darkness most of the time. And then when you get to Detroit, you will land in daylight. And so they are offering that flight. I did not check prices because there's no way I'm flying to Austin, getting on a plane, flying to Detroit, and then flying back from Detroit to Indianapolis. So people that want to do that, and they they picked a special jet that's got bigger than average windows so people can really enjoy the eclipse. And that is this week's eclipse update. And yes, Dee, every week we're going to have an eclipse update until the big (laughs) event because we are. So on the, my husband loves to watch the news. I don't know why. And at night, every time they've been doing local eclipse updates in Oklahoma, because it's going to be available here too, unless we have a cloudy day. And so he said, and yes, some of the schools are letting out, which makes me laugh because we had a, we had one of these eclipses when I was in school. And we literally just made the boxes and stuff and did it at school. Now they're acting like it's, I don't know. Anyway, oh. so my every time there's an eclipse update, oh, I know I know they're letting people out at your schools too. You told us last time. Bill, every time it's on, he's like, D, D, watch this. And I'm like, you know, I don't care about any of this stuff. I am the most disinterested person about that kind of, I don't know why I'm so disinterested. But there are probably people that are like you, D. They're like, yeah, okay, that was nice. Four minutes. I know there have to be. I want to hear from those people. <laughs> the people who are like, meh, it's four minutes. Who cares? Anyway. I mean, will I go out there for that time period? Maybe if I'm available. I'm just as likely to be running errands and go, oh, there it is. All right, garden commissions. Go for it. You go first. I'll go first. I don't have any. So I need to start my onion seeds because it is getting on and weather permitting, I'm just going to go slowly clean things up because, you know, my, my garden is the location for the world's greatest family Easter egg hunt at the end of March. So it's got to be a little bit nice. And then I did order a new patio table and four chairs. And then I ordered a special chair just to sit in the vegetable garden cathedral because you know, uh-huh. one of the lost ladies of garden writing had a really interesting chapter on, and I wrote about I wrote about it in yesterday's blog post, but you, I'll put a link to that. But anyway, so I'm waiting for those. And then I was in Costco the other day, as one is. Not me. And I heard someone ask me, behind me said, are you ready for pansies? Of course, my head's on a swivel when somebody says the word pansies. I turned around and it was the the mom of the greenhouse owner and and the sister of the greenhouse owner they were they were shopping at Costco and they said the pansies and violas are coming along and and uh, we had discussed it last year that she was probably making them a little bit too early to be ready so they're going to be a, f- a week or two later so I think in another week week and a half maybe two weeks I'll get the call that says they're ready and then I will head down there and buy them up but she said they're looking good. Well, anybody who wants pansies in my part of the world, they have them at TLC right now. And they've had them all winter long. They've they've kept them alive. So I don't know. Okay, I thought of my garden commission, I think. I had it for here a second. Oh, I'm going to continue cleaning up my garden because I have an acre and a half of garden. And by cleaning up, I mean, you know, pruning the roses and getting them ready and probably starting to feed them because they're already starting to bud out. I did a little video 
a little video on Instagram where I had a little. You did. I wouldn't call it a full on temper tantrum. I just said I was cranky because there's these memes that are everywhere that have all these pronouncements, right? And one of the pronouncements was, you must leave everything in your garden until all the bugs are out. That's all it said. And I was like, no, no, you don't have to do that. No, you don't. And I know people are going to write in and go, oh, but Carolyn D, the little tiny baby bugs. And I'm like, here the bugs are, I mean, at my house, they're out. And here's the thing. I'm not saying remove all of your leaf litter. If you have leaf litter and you want to leave it till forever, go ahead. If you want to take your stems of your perennials and chop them up into six inch lengths and make that as mulch around your plants, go ahead. It's your garden. You're allowed to cut off the you're allowed to cut off the dead. And I know that insects overwinter in dead perennial stems. Yes. But mine are so dead right now that they need to come off and we need to start getting things ready. So if you want to break those up and turn them into mulch, great. And if I lose one or two little baby insects. I just, all those people that get on my case about it, which there was only really one, everybody else was like, thank you for saying that, right? Because they just see these pronouncements and they go, oh my gosh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Well, not, not exactly. And different pronouncements work for different parts of the country. One lady was in Iowa and I was like, yeah, I mean, Iowa, I know nothing. It's too early in Iowa. Iowa is north of me. Yeah. They're a colder zone. They're like five. They're, they could still have snow on the ground. I'm right next to Texas. Okay. So we need to start working on it. And the other thing, oh yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm going to link to the video and it's, I think it's funny. I'm in it funny. So a lot of people thought it was funny. In response to your crankiness, I put out a little meme thing that says the most important thing about gardening is to enjoy yourself and have a good time. A CZ guest quote. And with that, Let's wrap up this episode. Thank you for listening to The Garden Angelist. I hope you've hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. We publish every week on Wednesdays at 12 a.m. Eastern Time. If you listen to Apple Podcasts, we'd love a five-star review that helps us get noticed by others. Thank you to those who have done so because it's not easy. Could you also share our podcast with your friends? Word of mouth is still the best way to get the word out there. And be sure and check out our show notes for links for more information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. And go ahead and subscribe to our Substack newsletter, the Garden Angelus at Substack.com. It's also linked to in our show notes. If you do, you get the link to listen to the podcast a whole day early. And if you want to help support us, use those affiliate links. If you buy something after clicking through on them, we earn a small commission and it costs you nothing. Or if you want to, you can set up a monthly subscription through Buzzsprout or make a one-time donation through PayPal. Thank you. Thank you indeed to everyone who has done so. It was lovely to chat with all of you over the garden gate. Bye until next week. Bye, everybody.